0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about universities. There are new polls out, new studies, surveys, that show just how many incoming students are reluctant to go to school this fall, waiting, hoping maybe to defer for a year because of what they're gonna miss out on. This is not a number that's gonna make universities excited, let me tell you, we'll discuss that one. We're also gonna talk about two new studies that show perhaps the strangest thing you will ever hear, smoking may help as a defense against covid I'm not making this up two new studies from very reputable universities have found smoking could have benefits now it's the only thing smoking is going to benefit you with but we will be discussing that one and the cfl what's going on out west you know the cfl is looking for a bailout how are they taking this out west is this Are they fully on board? Is this all they're talking about? Well, we're going to talk with a former play-by-play guy of the Riders and an MP out there who questioned Randy Ambrosi during his Commons Committee hearing the other day. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So last week, if you were in my conversation with Sean Van Kunit, who is the Dean of Students at McMaster, and we were talking about what the school is doing to try and deal with everything that's going on. And during that conversation, one of his comments was that they were doing everything possible to ensure that students who had been accepted to come in next year as first year students, especially, although others as well, would actually enroll and didn't want to defer their acceptance for a year. At the time, I was wondering how real a concern that was. I mean, if you're accepted, what else are you gonna do for a year? You can't work probably employees aren't hiring, so what are you gonna do, sit home? I mean, I suppose you can upgrade some courses, but if you've already been accepted, what else are you gonna do? Well, it would appear the answer to that question and the concern is uh, quite real. A new study has been done of 18 surveys that have been taken of first-year students and families, and it shows a rather massive, rather significant number, who appear disinclined to start their university experience this fall in the middle of rules that prevent social distancing and affect the traditional first-year activities. Uh, not what the universities want to hear, I can assure you of that. Ken Steele is the chief futurist with Eduvation. He is an education expert, uh, especially in post-secondary. He joins us now. Ken, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Are you at all surprised by this or weeks ago when these issues started coming up, were you expecting this is where this was going to head?
1: Well, you know, it's hard to say. I think what we know is that there's an awful lot of different students heading to post-secondary. And uh, I think when you look at the traditional age students, the, the graduating class from high school this year has had their proms taken away, their ceremonies taken away. They've been locked up with their parents for, for weeks now. And, uh, there is, there is, there's going to be uh, conflicting forces. So as you try to imagine, where do they sit on this? You know, there's going to be cabin fever like we've all got that they want uh, to get away to school as soon as they can this fall. At the same time, as there's going to be huge disappointment if they're not able to go to campus and experience the post-secondary Kind of dream uh, that they've had for years—the the, the full experience of being in residence or being in clubs, of being in athletics, of being involved on campus—it's uh, going to be a very different year, and I think that's inevitable. So, so I've been watching this pretty closely for a couple of months now because uh, inevitably, as the awareness and realization grows that COVID nineteen is a serious threat that's not going away, and that the fall is going to be disrupted, and probably the spring is going to be disrupted, uh, the the uh, reality sinking in, and so as you watch the surveys, what what I did was I pulled together 18 surveys that have been done around the world. A lot of them were in the United States. There was only a few of them in Canada, uh, but over time, in the last two months, you can sort of see some growth in that um, intention to defer enrollment, and in particular, an intention to defer it if all they could do was have online study. And I think that uh, mm-hmm. was what I wanted to make sure my college and university clients were hearing was that. Uh, that this is a real threat. It's it's certainly not the only thing that's going to impact enrollment this fall, but it's it's something they need to pay attention to.
0: Right, and and certainly, you know, you go to university to learn. I mean, that's the underlying thing and to prepare yourself for your career, but there is certainly a social component to this and an experience that has been, I think, very glamorized in our society, quite honestly, that you want to have that. Even so, some of the numbers that I saw in the study that you put forward. I mean, up to 50% of incoming students are having some second thoughts about this. That's got to give universities chills when they see numbers like that. Well,
1: yes, I mean, bear in mind, a lot of those numbers that were in the 50% and higher were international students who were sitting in in Africa or in India, and they were looking at the odds. Uh, and, And the reality is many of them won't even have a choice. Uh, it'll be enroll online or or wait because they won't. I suspect our borders will be closed to students for some time. Uh, that's just my guess based on the epidemiology and the likelihood of that being the last thing the government releases. But uh, but absolutely, I think I think we're talking about twenty five to fifty percent is sort of what I've I've suggested to people for for domestic students who are looking at, at post secondary, specifically for those who are traditional age coming out of high school. Who are going to at least say on a survey that they are willing to consider deferring. Uh, and I think the key question is you know, what if we start to realize that this isn't just 20, uh, 2020 fall, it's also 2021 fall. And maybe it's going to be 2022 fall before you can have a normal experience. Does that change their choice? Uh, if they have to put their life on hold for two years to wait for an on campus experience, I think we might see uh, that reality sink in too. So there may be a this may be a wave that sinks backward again over time. you are going to have to keep a close
0: eye on it. So in other words, that if you're going to have to miss a year, I'll wait. If it looks like I'm going to have to wait two years, I may as well just go because what am I waiting for? I,
1: I it, that's just my instinct. I mean, I, there was only one of the studies that actually looked at that question with international students, and they certainly found that. The majority, about 60% of them, lost patients once they got to the the idea of 12 months. So some of them said six months, some of them said nine, some of them said 12. But after that, there weren't very many that were prepared to defer longer uh, because of COVID-19. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML.
0: Ken, do you expect that this will have different implications for different universities in that there are schools like Mac or Western or Brock or those around here who have very active on-campus life, and there are others that are more commuter schools, places like Ryerson or York. Would they be in a better position to weather something like this if that social side of things is not quite as prevalent?
1: Well, exactly, Scott. I think commuter schools are in a much better position here because... If you're enrolling in an institution and you're unsure whether you're going to be on campus or online, it may come and go over the se- over the semester. Uh, you're going to enroll nearby, so so semester so commuter schools commuter enrollment is is likely to increase if anything across the country. And the the real challenge is going to be for destination schools. The flip side, of course, and and the, and the thing that's tougher for me to predict because I'm not an epidemiologist is whether a small rural school in an isolated spot, like, like, say, northern, uh, northern British Columbia, or in Prince Edward Island, you know, maybe it's in a position where it actually could open its campus because the uh, hmm. cases in the community might be lower. So so across the country, we're going to have varying waves of pandemic. And, and the question would be, are there going to be some safe spots where a campus can actually operate more of the year? And, and that, that is a gamble that i i wouldn't want to put
0: money on Hmm. what what is this going to do to universities themselves because we understand that the universities now are big business and they require big money which means a lot of tuitions coming in if you suddenly grind that down what happens to the schools
1: well and and you know that's it's frightening uh i think the U.S. We're seeing institutions already uh, declaring financial exigency, looking at hundreds of millions of dollars lost just because they had to reimburse students for residence. They had to let them go home early. Uh, here in Canada, it's not quite as extreme, and we've got a bit more of a government backstop to our public institutions. Uh, but we're already seeing some institutions, and as I've been watching the daily announcements, uh, I think at at the moment it's Conestoga that's actually gone the furthest in saying. Uh, that they're going to need to seriously look at some layoffs of full-time staff uh, because the reality is international enrollment is going to be seriously impacted domestic enrollment may be may be dropping for a number of these schools and the expenses of sanitizing the campus of social distancing of running smaller course sections uh, are going to accumulate so it's going to be a challenging time and i think just like every other sector of the economy the universities and colleges are going to be looking to the government for for support.
0: And there is another thing here. And and if you are listening right now and you are a student who may be starting grade 12 in the fall or a parent of someone who's starting grade 12 in the fall or a grandparent of someone who's starting grade 12 in the fall, if 50 percent, and again, I'm using that number as the highest possible end. But if 50 percent of students who would be going into university this year decide to defer is that not going to create a massive glut a year from now for spots, which is going to make it much more difficult for people who are coming out of high school? So the acceptance grades and everything else is going to go up. It's, it's going to create a, a jam at the other end, isn't it? Well, there's certainly this
1: possibility that if we have a one year lag before a vaccine is developed and things go back to normal in a year, if 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 we've got, you know, I I shall say, say for saying twenty five or thirty percent defer. We're going to have a bulge the following year, like the double cohort effect Ontario had back in 2003, when we eliminated grade 13, and suddenly we had two years worth of students graduating from high school at once. The difference is we had four years to prepare for that. Uh, Everyone knew it was coming. In this case, we're talking about going from a low year to to an increased year, so let's say it's 70%. Well, it's probably more like 60% this year, and then 140% next year. The institutions are going to have downsized, uh, and then they're going to be faced with uh, a glut of applications, as you say. So, yes, for some selective institutions or programs, that means it's going to be tougher to get in. Uh, it it may mean that institutions are scrambling to staff up and to to manage. Um, you know, in, in a sense, if we have enough students defer, it will make the task easier of managing social distancing on campus it's it's that's true you know they can't that's true and it could also
0: mean Ken, it could also mean that if you are trying desperately to get into a really difficult program right now your chances this year if you're willing to go may just have gotten a lot better right well
1: just like 2003 we had some students charge ahead early try to finish high school early in order to get out in 2002 ahead of the crush uh, and then we had other students do a victory lap in high school and buy their time and come out in 2004 or five, uh, students kind of spread themselves out to figure out where their best
0: chances are. It is, a, uh, it is a fascinating situation that is not going to get less fascinating as the summer goes on and this thing extends and we, uh, we see what happens. If you want to read more about this, go to eduvation, E-D-U-V-A-T-I-O-N, eduvation.ca uh, Ken's written a long piece there, fascinating piece about it that uh, that will give you more. Especially if you've got a kid, as I say, who's looking at university right now, you will want to dive into some of these numbers for yourself. Uh, Ken, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, well, thanks for asking me, Scott. You're listening
1: to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML.
0: We uh, every week or thereabouts, we like to bring in my next guest who uh, is an expert in health policy and health emergencies and all kinds of other health things. Uh, His name is Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid. And uh, as we bring him in now, I wanna tell you the next topic that we are gonna talk about with him is bonkers. And I mean, I say that, I I read this today and this is bonkers. And I I said, I've gotta get Dr. Khalid in because I, I, here it is. I don't wanna overstate things, but there are two new studies out one which looked at as many as 17 million people this was done not by you know the devry institute of medicine online or something by oxford and the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine who did this so they are legitimate people two new studies have found people who smoke are less likely to get covid and considerably less likely to suffer serious effects from it or die now this is early it has not been peer-reviewed, although, as I say, it is from respectable people. Uh, and in other words, we may have discovered the medical benefit of smoking. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but they are saying that smoking may now have a benefit to this. Um, now, the this, this study does, of course, point out that in literally every other way, smoking is bad for you. But this discovery that perhaps smoking in some weird way could help, People with COVID is shocking a whole lot of people. Uh, they're calling it the smoker's paradox. And uh, let me just read you a line from this study. In current smokers, there was a slight protective effect. Uh, the risks associated with smoking have been disputed with increased risks initially reported, but some more recent reports finding smokers are underrepresented in those with more severe disease and potential protective mechanism for nicotine has been suggested. Um it goes on again to point out that you know smoking is still not a good thing. But Dr. Khalid, I'm going to bring you in at this point. Um, I'm not sure we're going to be prescribing cigarettes anytime soon to people, but, <laughs> but uh, can you think of any reason why smoking seemingly could have some defense mechanism or defendable effects against COVID? To be quite honest with you, first of all,
2: hello to everybody, and I'm glad to be on the show again, and thank you for the opportunity to speak about some of the studies that are coming out. I am familiar with the study that came out, and, and the results are quite shocking. I think they create, created the wavelength uh, sort of among all the people involved in health and health policy to say, what is exactly going on here? Uh, we're not clear about that evidence. Again, it hasn't been peer-reviewed, as you know right. and we're still trying to evaluate it. Now, we, what we do know is that I mean, smoking tobacco is known to damage the lungs, period. We know that. There's no debate about that. And we also know that COVID-19 virus attacks the respiratory system, i.e. the lungs, which explains why, for the most part, smokers are actually are at a greater risk of uh, having severe complications because of COVID-19. So what I'm trying to say here, Scott, is that even though one study could show that smoking uh, did uh, somehow prevented COVID-19 in those patients, that's not the norm. The norm is that we've seen that people who uh, get COVID-19 and are smokers actually have a much higher chance of having severe consequences of health respiratory problems.
0: So, I think so yeah, say, it sounds so antithetical. It sounds so yeah. antithetical to what we would logically think, because you're right. It is a lung thing. And if you're going to damage your lungs, you're seemingly going to be at more risk. And what we know about science, too, Scott, is that studies take a time
2: for us to see the impact of them. So once now a lot of people are looking into this study you you mentioned. We're examining to see whether they conducted the correct analysis of the study. I mean, you are speaking about the two top institutions in the world, Oxford Universities and LSHTM, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, are the best of the best. So uh, they usually will not put out publications like this unless they verified it. So the question becomes is, Is this generalizable? Can we generalize those results to the average patient in any context or country? That will require time and require a lot of analysis to
0: really look into it. All right, let me throw a couple things at you that have been suggested about if this is true, why this potentially could be true. And I just want you to tell me if these make any sense whatsoever, if they're even remotely feasible. The first one, it's been hypothesized that perhaps when you are smoking, you're ingesting tar and that could somehow put a coating on the lungs that would be a protective barrier of sorts against a COVID virus. Does that even make any sense whatsoever?
2: I think that it does it, in, in, in the scientific molecular way, I think it makes very remote sense. Uh, okay. In a generalizable sense? I would say no, and for sure, I would say it's a little bit of an irresponsible sense. And what I mean by that is that my biggest concern, and I'm so happy we are talking about this on your show, is that we don't want to get the message out there that smoking prevents you from getting COVID-19. <laughs> Go nuts, <laughs> four
0: packs a day is a defense. Yeah, yeah,
2: we know that, right? Like, you know, if you think about COVID-19, let's think about the worst case scenario of you, you smoking lung cancer. And Let me tell you, my father died in lung cancer. It is not a pretty death. And so lung no. cancer can really affect people in a very drastic way and have quite you know as, as many of our listeners now who know somebody who has lung cancer unfortunately it's a very terrible disease and so that's why we have to be very cautious of that message please do not smoke smoking increases your risk of lung cancer period
0: among others right in every other way in every other way it's bad exactly. the second way we got to take a break in a second but the second suggestion which again may be just nuts but it's been thrown out there is that somehow nicotine has a, a an effect against a virus can nicotine does that make any sense that that could somehow weaken a virus or a bacteria that's in your body
2: yeah so the logic there that they're promoting is that nicotine somehow can stop the virus from reaching the cells in the body so it's acting like a barrier like a wall for the COVID 19 mm. to get this cells. that's just a theory that's what they speculate uh, i think it's going to take time this is one setting that i was done in it's going to take time to say that's true and I'll I'll honestly be, as a medical doctor, as a health policy expert, I'll be very surprised if this comes out to be something even that we can generalize our other settings.
0: It's um it, it will be a very interesting treatment if it turns out to be true that suddenly people who are lying in dire circumstances are going to have the equivalent of 15 cases of cigarettes dumped into their lungs at once to to heal them I, I I'm not expecting I'm not expecting that anytime soon.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Chatting with Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid about a study a number of studies a couple studies that may have shown that cigarette smoking helps against COVID it, it, early days. And, and just during the break, Ben, my uh, operator pointed out that, you know, back in the thirties and forties when way more people smoked, nobody had COVID. So maybe there's a, no, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, uh, I, I'm not sure we're going to use that as our, our medical guide. Uh, Dr. Khalid, let's go to a second issue uh, that I wanted to ask you about today. We have heard today, there was a story in The Spectator, about a number of false positive tests that have popped up in Hamilton. I think we're up to two dozen or thereabouts. Now, I understand how you can have a false negative if the swab doesn't pick up any of the virus. So you could have it, but somehow it's not been attached to the swab. How do you possibly have a false positive?
2: Well, it all depends on the sensitivity of the test we know that the tests that we are deploying in canada are highly sensitive and highly specific uh, but in the case that it can be uh, pos- uh, sorry um, falsely positive is that when you look at the test results and the patient you know has no symptoms but somehow the test came back positive and then the pa- uh, negative sorry and then the patient started developing symptoms you start suspecting there's a flaw in diagnostic testing itself uh, it can be, de- depending on the sensitivity and specificity of the test and the way the specimen was collected.
0: Right. And I mean, we just at the top of the show today mentioned Nick Cordero, who's the actor from Hamilton, who's been battling this. And he had two false negatives before they finally found it. So again, I, I, that, that to me is clear. But if you have a false positive, does that automatically mean that the that there was some sort of uh, mix-up or that there was some sort of cross-contamination or something, or is there is it possible that you have the virus in you but you're not afflicted with the virus?
2: So if it's false positive, what that means is that if the test is telling you that you have COVID nineteen, but in reality you don't, uh, and and that could happen for multiple reasons. And one of the reasons could be that it's a faulty test. So. If you look at it, it you, there's this patient, the person has no symptoms. So zero symptoms. We test them once, it becomes false positive. We test them again, it becomes positive. So we're sure that the result is true. So the patient does have the symptoms and the test tell us that he has a symptom. That's how we get to that conclusion. Those things happen with all tests. This is not specific to COVID-19. It happens with the HIV testing. With any test that we have out there, there will always be some false negatives and false positives. That's by virtue of the testing mechanisms. They're not always uh, 200% confirmed, not even 100, 200, because it takes time. So Hamilton has 10 false positives, and that might increase over time. But I think over the more we use the test, the more better we are at developing them, and the more accurate they are.
0: Does everybody then test positive? Because if you test negative, but you're sh- still showing symptoms, apparently they will give you another test. If the doctors believe that you are showing those kind of symptoms, they'll go, okay, okay. They- that's a mistake. If you test positive, do you automatically get a second test to make sure that you really are positive?
2: No, th- not everybody who who tests positive. We're, it, basically what you're asking is, are we confirming that? So, you know, if you are tested positive, do we just want another test to make sure you have it? That's not the case. If you test positive, the assumption there is you are positive and therefore you should be going into self-isolation and we manage you depending on the symptoms you have. So if you are if an elderly population, or severe immunocompromised, or showing signs of difficulty breathing, then you will get probably further clinical intervention. But for the most part, if you test positive, we take it for for granted that you are positive.
0: One more thing, we just have a couple minutes left on this one. And again, reading today, reading this week, that as many as 200,000 surgeries uh, were cancelled or put off in Ontario over the last number of months because hospitals were clearing space for a surge of COVID patients that never seemed to really materialize when we're done with this philosophically when everybody looks back on it are we going to say that because there are people who are now they're saying that people have died from not being able to get those surgeries and so it's been a, a decision about what do we do philosophically did we make the right decision do you think philosophically i actually even will argue that medically uh,
2: which is what we're talking about here, we did the right decision. We have to, okay. uh, to, to prevent the mass population from getting COVID-19. But I agree with you. I think there is a genuine concern, and it's a valid one, that we really need to start looking at opening up surgeries again. Uh, and But to be clear here, the, most of the surgeries that were canceled were not the urgent ones. So if somebody needed an urgent surgery, they were still, they were still happening. Uh, it was the elective ones and the ones that were deemed non-essential basically. Uh, and I think, yes, we are at a point now, which I know we are, uh, of having the conversations about getting those back up and running immediately, because you're absolutely right. There are people who need those surgeries for their quality of life. And my mother is even one of them uh, who really needs to get those surgeries back in place. And many other people out there have been asking and championing for this.
0: Yeah, because I mean, ultimately, um... A death is a death. I mean, it doesn't matter if you die from COVID or you die from something else. If we, if you die, you die. We can't bring you back. And so, it. it yeah, I, I'm sure there's going to be immense amounts of discussions when this is over about the next time. Did we do the right thing here? And and I, like again, I, I don't think there's really an easy answer. I, I mean, I don't. Maybe there is, but I don't think there is. Well, I, I, I would even argue, Scott, that there. Not, it's not even about the next time. It's about
2: now. The reality is that we're missing the conversation on, which many reports are saying. We're not going to be out of this for a long time. So, and what I mean by that is that until a vaccine and herd immunity is in place, we're going to be staying in this, in this phase that we're living in for quite some time. So we can't wait for the next pandemic to learn from this. We're still living this one. We're not over this one. And it's going to be another at least a year of this. So, yes, we need to start thinking about how do we change all this. How do we get better tests out there? How do we get our elective surgeries running and up and going and how we resume the healthcare system with pre-COVID times?
0: Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, who by the way, uh, for the record, has not suggested everybody begin smoking today to cure themselves from COVID. Just a, <laughs> always appreciate you doing this. Thanks of for the course. time. Happy to see you, Scott. You're listening to the
1: Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML
0: want to get into this story though from out west about the cfl right now we've been talking about it for a number of days you heard about randy Ambrosie going in front of the commons committee the commissioner of the league lobbying for 30 million right off the bat and up to 150 million to keep the league alive because there's a possibility of no season this year um well i mean if there is no season the place where this will be felt most strongly unquestionably is going to be out west and is going to be in saskatchewan because the riders they, they are the beating heartbeat of the CFL, there's no question. Rod Peterson a long time, has been the longtime voice of the riders. He's now host of the Rod Peterson Show that you can find on his website uh, and elsewhere. Uh, Rod joins us now. Rod, how are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. Good to hear from you. Excellent. You too. It's been too, too long. Um, how is this playing out there? Because there's no question that the number one place for the CFL is Saskatchewan. But I'm wondering how the whole story of the CFL going cap in hand to the country is playing.
3: Uh, Well, uh, I'm glad that you brought me on to ask. I should mention, by the way, this will be the theme of our interview. You know, everybody's hurting right now. And you mentioned our show is on my website. But we also signed a national television deal with Game Plus Network. We were to debut April 8th, but because of the pandemic, uh, they're not broadcasting live, similar to TSN and Sportsnet. So... How's it playing in Western Canada with with Randy Ambrosi's pitch? Not well, Uh, I'm sad to say. Really? No, not at all. And even CFL fans themselves were turned off, I'm going to say, by the coverage of Randy Ambrosi's pitch to the standing committee. Uh, The coverage of it, or even those that that watched it, because you can uh, after the fact, and live, they just thought that he seemed ill-prepared. And I have to say that uh, I'm a Randy Ambrose fan, still am. I know that, I, or I believe he lives in Mississauga, and your listening area is probably a listener of CHML. But as a guy that worked in the league for 20 years, and I've only been out one, I'm intimately aware of the finances of the CFL. And, you know, it's hard for them to make money in a good year. I mean, you saw the coverage. You've been talking about it for days, and you saw him say that team's lost a combined 10 to $20 million last year. That's in a good year, Scott. So, yet, you know, Kevin Waugh, the MP from Saskatoon Grasslands, who got, you know, was, the coverage was that he was grilling Randy ambrosie He wasn't grilling Randy at all. He was asking questions. This is taxpayer money. We need to know if you want up to $150 million, what's it going to be used for? And I should also mention, I think some of your listeners that know my story know that I work full-time now in the mental health and substance abuse field, the addictions field. I've lobbied the government of Saskatchewan for millions of dollars in funding, which we got. But I've stood before those health ministers and said, you know, they've grilled me. You're asking for a big ask here. What are you going to use it for? And you need to know your business by like the back of your hand to answer any and all questions that come your way. So I think the media that were were shocked at these pointed questions from the MPs just don't understand how this works. And in Randy's defense, he could have been armed better going in. And there's, I guess, how's it going over out here? There's a lot of CFL pundits. I'm talking ex-players, people that have covered the league for a long time, saying the Board of Governors has some blood on their hands here because they didn't prepare Randy well to go in and meet with those MPs in the standing committee. So that's, it's not going over well i guess to answer your question i'm sorry for being so long-winded even cfl fans think the pitch might have done more harm than good and if they planned to get this money
0: and that's you know that to me is fascinating because I, i my inclination rod would have been if there was a place in this country that would have said whatever we need that's what we get that's what we want we're not even going to be too specific or too hard on the questions just give us the money to keep this league alive i would have thought that it would have been rider nation in saskatchewan and if you guys are having some questions about this and if there's some criticism out there i can only imagine what the questions are in other parts of the country that isn't so invested in this league (laughs) i was shocked too
3: (laughs) with the results because there's been polls on it and I've seen the commentary from people online and I think I was just before we came on I was watching highlights of Justin Trudeau's address this morning and he talked about oh if there's one thing that the, that COVID-19 has exposed it's the way that we treat our seniors in this country I'm thinking Justin there's a lot of things that have been exposed here and oh, you you name it I mean we're I've got this marked down Scott as 61 days this is the 61st day of you can call it life without sports if you want. Basically since this came on everybody's radar and people aren't getting better, they're getting worse fighting over help, you know. And so so the comments that I've received from the average person of Saskatchewan and most of them are Rider fans is regarding the CFL get in line, wait your turn. So whether you're a And what happens
0: pattern, and what happens then? I mean, because the, the follow-up question to that is okay, uh, but there's a chance then that if if Randy Ambrose's pitch was not hyperbole but was accurate, there is a chance then that there is no league potentially when this whole thing is over. And what do the fans out there say when you follow it up with that question?
3: Well, at this, they they don't think that far ahead. Uh, I'm not saying they're right. What everybody's concerned about right now is their own ass in their own bank account. They haven't thought far enough to realize that there might not be a CFL. The reason that I'm advocating on behalf of the Canadian Football League is everything that it's meant to me. But if the average Canadian only cares for the CFL because they go to one or two games a year or watch it on television but really have no other vested interest beyond that, I don't think they're going to be in support of them getting federal aid either. I understand the finances. That's why I said it off the top of this show. I know that in a good year, they're just scraping by. So I understand, the $150 million, while it looks whopping, I get it. And I've got other leagues across this country say to me, because I'm working now in hockey more so than ever, lacrosse, baseball, basketball, the CEBL, how closely do you think they're watching this situation and saying, if the CFL CFL gets a check cut to them, what do we get? And on the flip side, well, you know, the government's waiting for that too, and that might that would be a hindrance to anything the CFL is going to get.
0: And Rod, one of the other comments that I've heard a lot of in the last few days, and again, I didn't know if this was just an Eastern Canada kind of thing, which is why I wanted to talk to you, is uh, in Regina the team makes money. It's a community organ- community owned team, but it makes some money. It's a it's a I don't know how I don't know how much money, but it it, sh- it works out okay. Winnipeg probably did okay. I mean, there are some teams that are community owned that are hanging in, but the other teams. They're owned by guys who have money, so why can they not put some of their own in here to lose? Now I know teams have been losing money for years, a lot of them, and we heard Randy Ambrosi say in a good year it was ten to twenty million. Is the sense out there that if you're a rich owner or perceived as a rich owner that you should be covering a good chunk of this? Oh,
3: absolutely. Absolutely it is. And I'm talking to you in the in what I think is a wonderful market to illustrate this point. Bob Young's been underwriting the cost for the Tiger Cats for himself for years. It was years after he bought the team that they even started to make money. I guess what Ambrosi's saying, and I would agree, is at what point are these owners willing to walk away? And when he, you know, there's a lot of people think that, that Ambrosi or, or, or that the, 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 the fate of this league isn't as dire as it seems. And I'm trying to tell them do you think Randy Ambrosi would stand before the House of Commons or this nation really and bluff? It's, it's that serious. So these owners, uh, David Braley, <laughs> oh my, I can't even imagine another guy in your listening area, how many millions, tens of millions he's lost on the CFL. And Randy's basically told the House of Commons, these guys are willing to turn the keys in and walk away. And frankly, I don't blame those guys, but that's coming from a CFL guy. And back to that other argument on you know, how Randy did or how it's being perceived. When you're talking to government officials and asking for money, particularly millions, you have to sell them on it. Give us, tell us why this is a good reason, or why this is, why, give us a good reason to give you the money. And that's kind of what's being debated the most out here, is did Randy do a good enough job of that? Now, furthermore, I just read an article on one of the MPs in your area saying that it would be it's alarming to think that this, any money to come from Ottawa to the CFL would go to American players. Well, how far did you dig into this? Because we talked about that last week. It was a poll question. I had to be convinced. Just as a Canadian that I am, and yourself, why should Americans get the money? Because there's there's more Canadians in line. you know. And then it's, well, this is their sole source of income. So Mike Riley took to Twitter today and said, listen, I've been paying taxes in Canada for 10 years. Both my kids were born there. How many hours is, have I given back to the B.C. and Edmonton communities on a volunteer level? So that's another layer scott but unless you stand up and fight for your cause you're going to get trampled because everybody's got their hand out right now
0: yeah they do uh rod peterson you can check him out RodPeterson.com. great website by the way rod outstanding website i gotta get whoever built yours to build mine uh listen i appreciate you taking some time to talk today thanks for doing this thanks scott stay safe uh, now Rod mentioned Kevin Waugh, who is an MP out there for Sask- uh, for Saskatoon Greenwood, and uh, Kevin Waugh joins us now. Kevin, how are you this evening? We're doing well, Scott.
4: Real well. It was good to hear Roddy
0: talk about the CFL.
4: Um, he used to be the voice of the writer. so uh, he knows uh, very well what this province uh, is bleeding green, as as you well know.
0: Yes, and by the way, I miss Pride. By- spoke your uh, it's saskatoon grasswood not greenwood so I'll, I'll get it right yeah you know what i hear yeah, saskatoon fine. we talk riders and i put green in front of anything it's just it's a it's a natural mistake <laughs> um yeah, now for people who don't also know uh kevin also was uh in a, in a past life was a sportscaster so i mean you, you're in an interesting position here kevin you're on this board this committee that was hearing randy Ambrosi uh make his pitch the other day you're a former sportscaster you are Uh, representing Saskatchewan, which, as I just talked with Rod, is the heartbeat of the CFL. There is definitely a balancing act for you here, uh, because I imagine your constituents are pretty heavily invested in how this whole thing turns out.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I was 40 years uh, a broadcaster here in the city, covered the riders. Uh, You know, I wasn't involved in play-by-play, but, of course, Saskatoon's two, two and a half hours away so, uh we had uh, every and sports cast we had a story on the rough Riders. uh and now, as an m p uh you know you're you're in charge of taxpayers' money, and so, when the finance committee came last thursday, uh you know they had eight groups of arts, culture, and sport. The lone sport was Randy Ambrosi, he came forward. And so I was leading the questions off. And, and maybe, Randy, let's give him a little slack here. Uh, being a conservative from Saskatchewan, you may have been thinking, well, he's going to be easy on me. But it was anything but but. Uh, you know, I asked the first question is this a or is this a bailout? And Randy, being the former offensive lineman he was, started backtracking. He had no idea, you know, it was a partnership, it's this and that. Well, it's totally a bailout, and uh, the Canadian government will have free ads on in, in every stadium in the country, and uh, you will have, uh, you know, public service announcements on TV with the uh, CFL players. And uh, you know, I had to be upfront. Uh, I do not think this is a loan that the teams will pay back. But uh, you should have been expecting that first question: a bailout or a loan? Uh, and talk about that. And, and Randy unsuccessfully came across that day uh, to the committee in finance.
0: And so, and again, I go back to my point though, that you, um, because people there are so tied to the riders, there is such a love for that team. uh, When you finished questioning him and some people said you grilled him, some said you just asked difficult and, and fair, but hard questions. Was there a thought in your mind that when this was done, you were going to hear from your constituents that you had been too hard on the guy who runs the league we love? And what was the response?
4: Well, you know, Scott, I send out a newsletter every two weeks to uh, my constituents, and it's an electronic one. We have maybe 3,500 to 4,000 that get it. Overwhelmingly, I asked the question Wednesday, should the government bail out the CFL? Overwhelmingly. Four to one. No. These are I'm professional shocked. athletes. Absolutely not. And and I get it. Uh, Saskatchewan has a brand new $300 million uh, stadium, the Mosaic Stadium, where Rod is from in Regina. Nobody wants that empty. Uh, the riders pay over a million dollars to the city of Regina for the use of the stadium. Uh, but I was not surprised. I mean, uh, where do you end this? We have a very successful lacrosse league in Saskatchewan. They draw 15,000 per night when they're in Saskatoon. Do they ask for it? Uh, I've got a request from the Canadian Soccer League requesting the same funds. What do you do with Canadian Hockey League franchises that didn't have the long playoff that they should have? Do they line up now and say, "Look, we lost 200, 300,000 because we didn't have that opportunity to host playoff games? So, this was not, intru- you know, for me, I was, I, I, you know, Randy, you've got to come forward. We only employ 200 to 225 Canadian players in the league, uh, rosters, and, and, and so on. So, you know, we've got to have the discussion. If Bob Young is going to be losing money, and he has for years, and David Barely, the same thing, the model is broken. The model is broken this would be the time I would say to the CFL, fix the model. Because the Bob Youngs and David Brayleys and so on are not going to be around much longer. And that has to be with the Players Association. Only oh, by the way, not consulted, Scott, when Randy Rosie early in April, asked for the $30 million from the government. So the Players Association were caught off guard. And I have a call with the Players Association later this week to discuss what happened with them not at the table.
0: We just have a couple of minutes, Kevin, but I, I am very interested because there does seem to be one underlying thing to this whole discussion, uh, and that is, although it's ironic that, uh, as I say, that you have been not necessarily just a cheerleader for this by any stretch. So the Conservatives are not just... You ending that any money be given we know how the last federal election went we know how Alberta and Saskatchewan look in the federal election color map and I'm wondering when you look at the federal government do they do you think that Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals look at this as a hmm we can gain some ground if we do something to help a league that matters a great deal to the people out there or do you think it's more the other way where they say there's no votes in that part of the country For us, so we can direct our resources somewhere else that we're going to spend and uh, and make it more valuable. Because politics is part of everything. We know politics is part of everything. Which which way do you think that will go?
4: Well, you're right. I mean, you look at the federal government; they've given little money to the oil and gas industry uh, in the prairies. So you're right; they've written that off. Um, Have they written the CFL off? No. I think what's happened is Ambrosi came to the finance committee; he was short. Wasn't only me, a conservative, Peter Julian, NDP. We had a liberal from Ontario asking the same questions. So now I think what Ambrosia and the CFL is going to do, and I see it on uh, certain Twitter accounts. They've gone behind, and now they're talking to David Lametti, the Justice Minister. Uh, McKenna talking about uh, with her on infrastructure. So eventually, if you talk to the cabinet ministers and Trudeau himself, they will make the decisions. You don't have to answer to any finance committee. You can go and talk to the cabinet ministers, which I know they're doing right now, trying to get support in the handout.
0: It's a uh, it's a topic that we will be hearing lots about. 150 million dollars. Now that's not a guarantee, but that's an awful lot of money. I know we'll be hearing more and more about this. Uh, Kevin Waugh from Saskatoon Grasswood. I got it right this time. Uh, Kevin, I really appreciate <laughs> you taking a few moments today. Thanks for doing this.
4: Yeah, thanks, Sorry I didn't get back to you earlier today, and then I was scrambling to get a hold of you, but you had Roddy on, and and that was good. Rod Peterson's very knowledgeable of football in the CFL and here in Saskatchewan.
0: It all worked out and I appreciate you doing it. Thanks so much. Good. Thanks, Scott. Anytime. The
1: Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
0: The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.
1: 911. 911. What's your
2: emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion! Oh my
4: god, the ship is sinking!
2: I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down! I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hummer. Hello? Are you there?